0: So this morning, the title is Seeing the God Who Sees All. Um, and we've kind of talked about this over the last few weeks, especially last week. Um, the book of Esther is really all about seeing God. It's, it's, even though he's not mentioned, he's not, um, his name's not in the book. There's no uh, scene in which he appears. You don't see a pillar of fire. You don't see a burning bush. You don't even hear his voice. His words are not recorded in the book of Esther. And yet, I think we've seen over the last seven chapters, he's all over the place. He's very much involved. And so this morning is all about how how do we see God? Uh, Jonathan, Jonathan and I were talking this morning, you know, you can read a book like Esther and it's easy to see God, even though he's not mentioned by now, I think all of us can see God in Esther, in the book of Esther that, oh, there he is. Yeah, that was God. That's a God deal. Uh, we can read the story of Abraham. We can read the story of Joseph, Daniel, and we can read that and go, there's God. Um, we can read the Exodus and we can see that was God. God parted the Red Sea. God brought the plagues. So it's easy to see God sometimes in Scripture. Where we run into trouble is seeing Him in our life, seeing, seeing Him in this context. And so that's really what I want us to kind of gravitate towards this morning as we talk about chapter eight. So here's our definition. Yes, it's a long one. It's by C.H. Spurgeon. Bear with me as we read through this. It's a a little uh, wordy. Put me in the desert where there is not one single blade of grass growing and his presence shall cheer me. Or let me go to sea amid the howlings of the tempest and the shrieking wind where the mad waves lift up their hands to the skies as if they would pluck the stars from their cloudy thrones. Who writes like that? Man. And I shall have the eye of God there. Let me sink and let my gurgling voice be heard among the waves. Let my body lie down in the caverns of the sea. And the eye of God shall be on every bone. And in the day of the resurrection shall my every atom be tracked in its wanderings. Yes, the eye of God is everywhere. Providence is universal. Now, the last line is, is the key to the whole thing. If you can wade through everything else he said... The eye of God is everywhere. Providence is universal. God sees all. He's the all-seeing God. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's all-seeing. There's nothing that escapes his vision. And yet sometimes in our lives we think, where was he? Why didn't he do something about that? He must not have seen that happen. He must not be aware of what's going on there or there in my life in this situation. But according to C.H. Spurgeon and according to the word of God, he's everywhere. He sees everything. Even the psalmist says, oh, Lord, you examine my heart and you know everything about me. That verse ought to scare every one of us because he knows everything about you. Ever tried to hide something from God? I mean, how stupid is that? You know, I'm not going to confess that because I don't want God to know. Wait a second. That's not how this works. Confession is not informing God of your sins. It's, it's agreeing with God that you have sinned. But he goes on, you know when I sit down and when I stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. How much does he know? Everything. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it. That part of this verse just drives me nuts. I thought my wife was the only one who knew what I was going to say before I was going to say it, but it's God. God knows what I'm thinking before I even thunk it, and that's how powerful our God is, and so there's nothing that surprises him. There's nothing I can do that he's not aware of, and, and so this idea that I can somehow hide things from God, is It's impossible. So this idea that he knows is all over this passage, that he sees. God sees, he knows, he's aware, he's cognizant, he's not surprised, he's never caught off guard. And that's part of what I think the book of Esther is trying to teach you and I is that our God is all-seeing, our God is all-knowing. And there's nothing going on in my life, there's nothing I do that he doesn't see. That also should mean that there's nothing done to me or against me that he doesn't see just like we've seen in this book there's all kinds of things that happen in this book that God's fully aware of and we're going to definitely see it in the chapter this morning here's here's the question do you believe this that God knows whatever you're going through whatever you know is happening in your life does God know is God aware um Sometimes I think we don't believe that. We we think he's unaware or he just doesn't care. How about this one? He sees. Do you, do you rest in the fact that God sees? So whenever something happens to you, do you, do you understand that God sees that? He's, he's not surprised. He's not caught off guard. The problem is that it's not that God doesn't see, it's that we don't see that God sees. We don't believe that God sees. We don't live as if God sees. And so this idea of, of learning to see God is, is critical to us taking the book of Esther and applying it to our lives. It's the real story of Esther. Um, again, even though he's never mentioned, he's all over the place. He's all throughout this book. And, and the more you read the book, and I, I had some, one of the guys come up to me yesterday, and he says, man, I've, I, I think I've read the book of Esther every day since we started. He said, because it's such a fascinating story. And he goes, the more I read it, the more I see God all over it. And it's true. Even though, what? You never see his name. You never see his face. You never see his presence. But you definitely feel his impact. And it will be true in chapter 8 as we read it in just a second. So as we said last week, faith is this idea of learning to see the invisible and imperceptible. Um, faith requires Um, A different kind of vision. Because God is what? He's invisible. None of us have ever seen God, um, and yet we believe in God. So it's a different kind of a vision. It's not physical eyesight. I'm not going to walk out today and and definitively see God. He's not going to appear before me, but he's going to be all around me in all that I do and everything that impacts me. So what we want to wrestle with today is how to learn to see God. God. Hebrews 11 says, faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. That's the essence of faith. It's not based on all the things happening to you. Our our biggest issue as human beings is we have physical eyesight and we have physical feelings and we have physical things that surround us and we are typically affected by physical things. We read the newspaper, and we are impacted by what we read. We see injustice, and we're impacted by that. We uh, have somebody do something against us, and we feel that. It's it's this physical thing, but we always have to remember that this is a spiritual battle at the end of the day. And some of the things we can't see or understand, we can't see the enemy, but we also can't see God. So that's where faith comes in. And it's often kind of interesting to me that we, we, we give far more credit to Satan sometimes than we do to God. And we'll blame so much on what happens to us or around us on Satan. And yes, he's involved. And yes, he's out there. But we have far more faith that he's involved in our lives than sometimes that God is, that God's active, that God's doing something. And that maybe that very thing that you think is Satan's fault is actually something that God brought into your life to make you more dependent upon him. Because he's trying to perfect you and grow you and mature you. Paul says in Romans, now hope is not is hope that is seen is not hope. In other words, if if you have something in your hand, you're not hoping for it, you have it. But he goes on and says, For who hopes for what he sees? You know, I don't wake up every morning, boy, I hope today I have a wife. I have one. I don't need another one. I can barely handle the one I got. Um, But hope is not based on what you have, it's based on what you don't have. It's looking for something. He says in 2 Corinthians, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're going to go away, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So there's this idea of spiritual sight, spiritual insight. That's really what the book of Esther is teaching us about, is that there's a lot of physical stuff going on here, right? There's Esther getting crowned. There's uh, Haman getting hanged. There's all kinds of physical stuff. But what's really the key to the story is all the spiritual stuff going on behind the scenes. And that's what we need to learn to see as we live life. So let's take a look at chapter 8. And if you want to read along, it is on page 97 in your notebook. So as, as we read through this this morning, just be looking for and even maybe circle some of the things that, that give evidence that God's there, that, hey, I see God. It says that on that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman. Now, what happened to Haman? He got hanged, right? He got spiked. He's gone. He's dead. So on that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. So it basically, the king didn't know Mordecai was her uncle, and we're going to find out he also didn't know she was a Jew. And he goes on and says, and the king took off a signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. What an interesting change of events. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. See, Haman's dead, right? He's gone, but his legacy lives on because the edict is still there. And Esther's got to do something about it. She's still concerned about what's going to happen in less than a year away. So when the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king and, he, and she said, if it pleased the king and if I found favor in his sight and if the thing seems right before the king and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. Now, what is she asking him to do? She's asking him to revoke the original edict. What can the king not do? That very thing. He can't revoke his own edict. It's it's the law of the Persians. And so he's going to give her a different opportunity. The edict stands. It's still going to happen. That day still looms out there. The day before Passover, all the people of the Jews who live in Persia are going to be killed. But he's going to give her an alternative plan. She goes on and says, For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. He says, you got Haman's hang, you got his ring, now you have the power, the authority to write another edict to circumvent the first edict. So now you're going to have two edicts out there. And it's going to be interesting to see what they come up with. And I think what they come up with is God ordained. They get it from God himself. Verse 9, the king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Saban, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews. So Mordecai is dictating the edict. To the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives. And he goes on. And this is key. Listen to what it says. To destroy, to kill, to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So basically, Mordecai, with the king's permission, writes a second edict that basically says all the Jews can defend themselves and kill anyone who tries to kill them and destroy, kill, annihilate all of them, and also take their plunder. So you got two, what, battling edicts. Two, and really, if you look at it from a biblical perspective, you've got two kingdoms getting ready to do battle, the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. They're going to they're gonna meet head-to-head on that one day, the day before Passover. And it goes on and says a copy of the edict was written and issued and sent out, So the couriers mounted their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor, and in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves as Jews, for fear the Jews had fallen on them. What an interesting turn of events. What a fascinating change to the story. Um, but what really gets my attention is the edict still stands, Right? they still have a death threat against them, but now they at least have an opportunity to defend themselves. And God could have, in God's way, he could have done something, even though the law of the Persian says you can't revoke the edict, God could have done something. But God chose to do it this way. And it's going to set up a really interesting situation coming up later in the closing chapters when that day finally arrives and you've got these two forces that are going to come against each other. But today, in this section, in this chapter, I want us to look at how do we see God in this? Where is God in this? And so it says, On that day King Ahasuerus gave to the queen the house of Haman. Haman's dead. He got his comeuppance. He got justice from God. God eliminated him. And... Now he, in all of his property, his property is now given to the queen. So God has done what God does. God does bring justice. Not always like we want or in the timing we want, but in this case, he did. And then he gives his signet ring right before they spiked Haman. he gets his ring back, and now he gives it to who? Mordecai, the very man who Haman had wanted to kill Now he's wearing the ring. He's elevated to the second highest position. See, all of this is the hand of God. This is God at work behind the scenes orchestrating things. But what about Haman? Haman's an afterthought. Haman's dead. Haman's already been buried. Haman is gone, but his legacy lives on, just as we said earlier. Haman has been eliminated, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the problem has been done away with. That's why when we seek justice, like we said last week, sometimes we think justice is the answer to the problem. You know, most of you guys have probably seen the movie, and you definitely remember the account of uh, Osama bin Laden and his demise. Did that change anything about the struggles that we have with terrorism, not really. Now we probably rejoiced in it; we were glad about it, but it didn't change anything. It it was one man being eliminated, and there have been other men eliminated in the leadership of ISIS, but it hasn't changed anything because what's at the heart of all of that? It's a spiritual battle. And Haman's gone, but the spiritual battle continues. And that's why we as Christians who are spiritual need to rely on God because at the end of the day, getting rid of everybody who's evil doesn't solve our problem because evil still exists. And someone will take Osama bin Laden's place and did and everyone else we try to get rid of, someone will take their place. And if, if you prayed to God to remove all the evil people out of your life this moment, this day, and God said, okay, I'm going to, guess what? 18 more would take their place. Why? Because we live in a world full of evil. And so justice, our idea of justice is, let's just get rid of everybody who bothers me. But it didn't, it didn't solve the problem here. Because Haman's gone, but the legacy of Haman lives on. Evil still exists all around the world. So what's going on? God hadn't missed a thing. God had seen everything that had happened. That's why Haman's dead. It's the reason she's the queen. It's the reason Mordecai's now the second highest person in the land. God had seen it all. He never was caught off guard. He knew exactly what Haman was up to. There are people who stand against you. There are people who do evil things against you, who God is fully aware of what they're doing. And based on what we read earlier, what does God know about them? What they're going to do before they even do it, before they even think it, he knows what they're going to do. Not only applies to you, it applies to everyone. God knows the thoughts of every man. God knows what they're going to do before they even think of what they're going to do. God's aware. God sees. And he had seen Mordecai. He had heard Mordecai. He didn't just turn around one day and go, why is Mordecai in sackcloth? And what's he babbling about? He knew what was going to happen. He he saw it all before it ever happened. This idea of God being informed by us is really kind of silly. God's the one who gave Esther wisdom in how she handled the king. Remember, three different times the king said, what do you want? I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. And the first time she says, I just want want to throw a feast for you and Haman. Great, that's wonderful. And the second time, what do you want? "I, I just want to throw another feast. Great. And the third time, she appeals for her people. Where'd she get that from? She got it from God. And he's the one who turned everything against Haman. We love chapter 7. We love the death of Haman. We love everything turning against Haman. I particularly love when the eunuch says, oh, by the way, king, he's built a scaffold 50 feet high that he was going to hang Mordecai, the guy who saved your life, and king goes, hang him on it. I love that. But why did it happen? Because God is the one who orchestrated it all. All all that we see here, the turning of the tables, the signet ring going from the hand of Haman to Mordecai, Esther getting the ear of the king, all of it is God working behind the scenes, making things happen. And the book of Job tells us this. It says God frustrates the plans of schemers, so the work of their hands will not su- succeed. He traps the wise in their own cleverness, so their cunning schemes are thwarted. See, that's God. Now you go, wait a minute, that's one of Job's friends. And they were they were morons. You can't quote that and use that. No, his friends were morons. They were counseling morons. They didn't know how to counsel well. Much of what they said, most if not all of what they said, was biblically true. It was just misapplied. See, this is true. It's true about God. But they were trying to say, Job, you're the one that screwed up. You're the one that must have sinned. You're the one who's the schemer. You're the one who God is punishing. They took truth and misapplied it. That's the one thing that many of us do more than anything when we counsel people. We, we take truth and we misapply it. But this is true about God. This is what he does to those who stand against us. Isaiah confirms it. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand for God is with us. It doesn't matter what your enemies do, say, plan, scheme. You you just got to remember God is for you, God is with you, God will stand beside you. It doesn't mean you're not going to suffer. It doesn't mean you're not going to face harm, ridicule, pressure, trials. But God is aware and God has a plan. And that's this idea of seeing God, that he's in it even though you don't recognize it. And at the end of the day, he frustrates the plans of the wicked. Now how he does that, we don't know. When he's going to do that, we're not always, always, (coughs) excuse me, we're not always aware. But the fact is, the truth is, he does. And it may be that we have to wait till the end of the story. (coughs) But God will deal with the wicked. Revelation 20. There's judgment coming. I tend to want it right now, but God has never taken my advice he doesn't need my help. He has a plan. He's going to work the plan. <coughs> and just as Abraham and Sarah learned, you can come up with plan B's till you're blue in the face, but God will never go, man, why didn't I think of that? Hagar, great idea. No, God doesn't need your help. And sometimes our plans just make things worse and delay the inevitable And what seems to be the impossible, but God's going to do what God's going to do. So we we see in this story in verse 3 that Esther goes for the king. Haman's dead, but she's still got a problem. The people of Israel, the Jews, have a problem. So she (coughs) falls at his feet. (coughs) You know, we prayed this morning that we wouldn't have any technical difficulties. (coughs) We just didn't pray for this. Is that whiskey? Yeah. No, good, good. it's very weak whiskey all right so she falls at his feet she weeps and she pleads thank you because she's what she still knows there's a need there's there's a problem and she's going to the source the king who she thinks can do something about it what does she not know he can't do anything about it and that's part of, part of the problem we get into is when we get into trouble, we sometimes go to the sources that we think can do something about the problem. They tend to be earthly sources. They tend to be our banker. If you're a banker, don't be offended by this. You know, that if I could just get more money, that'll solve my problem. If I could get a loan or if I could refinance or I could do this or that, that'll, if I could talk to an attorney, if I could. Guess what? They might be able to help. But it doesn't necessarily solve your problem. And as most bankers will tell you, they can lend you money, but if you have a money problem, you're just going to have another money problem, a bigger money problem somewhere down the road if you don't fix the true problem going on in your life. And so she falls at the feet of the king. She weeps, she pleads, and she asks him to avert the plan. Revoke it. Get rid of this edict. Stop it. He's dead. Let the edict die with him. But the problem is, the king can't. His hands are tied by, based on Persian law. And so he says, she, she says, let it, let an order be written. Revoke your original one. And he basically says, I can't. My hands are tied. So immediately, what does that put her in a place of, once again, vulnerability, independency. The, the king can't help her. All the king can do is basically say, Hey, I've gotten rid of Haman. I've given you all his property. I just gave my signet ring to Mordecai. Do what you need to do. Take care of the problem. And the problem still exists. The problem is the Jews, her people, are going to be annihilated. King can't help. All he can do is give her a little bit of aid. Here's my ring. You write an edict and I'll sign it, seal it with, your, with the ring. You have my permission. And she's having to learn that the calamity that they're facing needs a different source of help than she's ever going to get from the king, her husband. She's, a, she's appealing to an earthly king, but where's her help and hope going to come from? The king. God's going to have to help. God's going to have to intervene. God's going to have to do what only God can do. And what's really interesting about Ahasuerus, nowhere in this story, through eight chapters, has Ahasuerus ever come up with an idea of his own. Every time something happens, he has to have somebody counsel him. Even when he saw Haman laying on the couch on top of his wife, remember what he said? You know, who's who's... Who's going to help me make a decision here? What are we we going to do here? And then he had to listen to a eunuch who said, well, there's there's a scaffold out here. He never seemed to be able to make a decision. And he really didn't give his wife any help other than you own his property, you got the ring, do something. But she could depend on the king, God, to help her. And God would help her and God did help her. Psalm 94 fits perfectly with with this particular chapter and really with the book of Esther as a whole. We looked at part of it last week. It says, how long, O Lord, how long will the wicked be allowed to gloat? How long will they speak with arrogance? How long will these evil people boast? They crush your people. Lord, hurting those you claim as your own. They kill widows and foreigners and murder orphans. The Lord isn't looking, they say. And besides, the God of Israel doesn't care. See, that's what the world, that's what the wicked, that's what those who don't believe in God, who don't worship God, believe about God. That he doesn't care. He doesn't see. He's not looking. We can get away with literal murder. And sometimes we buy into that and we think, well, Maybe it's true. Maybe God doesn't see. Maybe God isn't looking. Maybe God is busy. Maybe He doesn't care. But what we got to learn from this book is that God sees, but He also cares, and God is going to do something. Verse eight Think again, you fools. When will you finally catch on? Is He deaf? Is God deaf? The one who made your ears? Is he blind? The one who formed your eyes? He punishes the nations. Won't he also punish you? He knows everything. Doesn't he also know what you're doing? The Lord knows people's thoughts. He knows they are worthless. Ouch. God knows. God sees. God knows not only the wicked, but he knows you. And it's really interesting. This passage in particular is directed more at you and I because sometimes we sit there and go, God, why not? When will, how come, do something, punish, do justice, get rid of them, kill them, wipe them out, and God, God sometimes says, wait a minute, what about you? What about your own life? What about your own sins? What about your own lack of integrity, your own injustice towards those around you? You're, you're just as worthless in your actions as those you really want me to bring justice upon. And this idea, again, we said it last week of justice is something we gotta walk very gingerly and carefully with because we don't want it. We want it on everyone else, but we don't want it on us. So again, verse 21 through 23, Can unjust leaders claim that God is on their side? Leaders whose decrees permit injustice. They gang up against the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord is my fortress, the psalmist says. My God is the mighty rock where I hide. God will turn the sins of the evil people back on them. He will destroy their sins for their sins. The Lord our God will destroy them. Look at all the references to God. See, if you and I are going to make it through this life if we're going to live in this world and survive and, and have any sense of peace, we got to start seeing God as who God is, even in the midst of what appears to be an injustice, unfairness. Where is he? What's he doing? He is there. God sees. God does deal. God is aware. He's never surprised or caught off guard. So basically, they get the right to to write their own decree, which they do, to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them. They get to write a counter decree. So we end up with, at the end of the day, you've got Haman's original decree calling for their death and Mordecai's decree that basically says, if anybody tries to kill us, we get to kill them and we get to keep all their plunder. So that you're going to have a day when these two things come into conflict. But that's a God-ordained thing because now you have equal ground. You have counter-proposals, counter-edicts. Each group has what? The authority to kill the other. Who's going to win that battle? Well, if it was just two groups against one another, I'm putting my money on the Persians. But who do the Jews have on their side? God. See, sometimes we feel outnumbered. Sometimes we feel like we don't have enough help, and yet the Jews have God and the Persians don't. So even though you got two edicts that are counter proposals and they're equal in weight and one group gets to try to kill the other, one side's going to win. And if you've read enough of the Bible, you know our side wins. The Jews are going to win that battle, as we'll see in the following weeks. But I love this about Mordecai. Mordecai ends up walking out of the king's presence, and look what he's wearing royal robes of blue and white. He's wearing a great golden crown. He's got on fine linen and purple. Remember when the king said to Haman, What should I do to the man whom the king wants to honor? What did he say? Clothe them in robes, royal robes. What kind of robes? Your robes, robes that you have worn. Put them on a horse that's your horse that has the royal crown on it. And let him be paraded around the streets and, and glory be proclaimed about this man. Now look what happens. That happened to Mordecai, but now Mordecai, who walked out of that occasion and went back into his sackcloth, now he walks out of the king's presence permanently wearing what? Royal robes, golden crown, fine linen, and purple change of status, change of events. Everything has been turned upside down. And I love this. The city of Susa shouted and rejoiced just when he walked out of the king's palace. The very things that Haman desired for, coveted, lusted after, Mordecai gets just for allowing God to work in his life. See, that's That's that idea of, remember, we looked at the passage that if we humble ourselves, God will lift us up. Remember where Mordecai was at the gate in sackcloth and ashes? Now look at him. God has lifted him up in his time, in his way, and Mordecai had nothing to do with it. So you have this radical change of circumstances in chapter eight. As you go back to chapter four, Mordecai was wearing burlap and ashes moaning and weeping and wailing because of the situation facing the Jews. Now he's wearing what? Royal robes. He's got a crown on his head. He's being applauded and lauded by the people. And he's been able to write this edict. But the day is still out there. They still have that one day coming. But Jeremiah says, "...the Lord has redeemed Israel from those too strong for them. The young women will dance for joy, and the men, old and young, will join in the celebration." I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and exchange their sorrowful rejoicing. See, what's really interesting in the story is that he walks out and the people are celebrating and they'll go on to celebrate the change of events. And we saw at the very end, there's even Persians who are now claiming to be Jews. Why? Because they're afraid of the Jews. They're not stupid. They've seen all this happen. They've seen what happened to Haman and they're like, you know what? I think, I think I'm a Jew now. I, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm going to convert. I'm going to be a Jew. And everybody is cheering and clapping, but the edict is still out there. But it's like they already know how the story's going to end. Hey, just look at Haman. He may have still been hanging up there. That's how it's going to end. If that's what happened to Haman, I'd rather be a Jew. Because their God seems to be stronger than our God. There's joy and gladness even before the day of calamity arrived. Nobody knew the outcome yet, but see, that's part of what I think we need to learn to do is that we need to rejoice. And that's why Paul said we can have joy even in the midst of trial. That's why James said the same thing, that we can rejoice even now. Why? Because we know how the story ends. We know how God's going to work everything out. Revelation 21, I heard a loud shout from the throne, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. That is our hope. Are there tears, sorrows, pain in this life? Yes. There are guys in this room who are going through it right now. You may have someone in your family who is ill, sick, diagnosed with cancer. I don't know. You may have financial issues. You will have pain. You will have sorrow. You will have tears in this lifetime. But there is a day coming when what? We never will again. And we can even rejoice now. So as the, as the pain comes, the sorrow comes, the calamity comes, guess what? You know what? I know how the story ends. And I can even rejoice now in what's coming. So to wrap this up, God is sometimes imperceptible. I've never seen him. You haven't either. You've felt him. You've seen the impact of him, but we can't always perceive him, but he is always there. And you've got to remind yourself of that. And the best thing you can do for a friend of yours who's going through a dark time is just remind him, God is there and I'm here and I'm with you and I will see you through this just like God will see you through this. But it's going to take faith, right? Because he doesn't always appear in the way we'd like him to appear. We need to trust that he sees all, he cares, and he's going to do something about it, and he's in complete control. And it's hard, guys. I know this is hard because I have things happen in my life that I I wonder, is he really in control? Because if he was, why did he let this happen? But see, all this story shows God's in control. He's he's been in control from day one. And yet, not everything pleasant happened. But we got to let the story play itself out. We don't always get to see his hand at work. We don't always get to experience his rescue, his justice in the way or the time we'd like. But it will come. They're guaranteed according to the scriptures. So here's how I want to just close this morning. And this actually came to me. This is not in your notes. So you may have to write it down. So... I'm going to put it on the screen for you, but this literally, as I was driving in this morning, this hit me because I was thinking, okay, how do I make this practical? How do I, how do I apply this to my own life? How do I see God? What does it take to see the all-seeing God? Because I'm driving to work, and I'm, I can't see him. Now, I can, I can you know, okay, well, there's, this, there's the stars. You know, he made the stars. Um, he made the weather, and the weather's nice, and my car's running, and Yes, my check engine light's on, but you know it's running, and um, you know. But God, see, we can do that. But is that all we got? Is, it, and I'm not trying to minimize that, but what does it take to see the all-seeing God? Here's here's the words that came to me. Adversity. Ah, oh, I hate that check engine light. Adversity. Everything I read in Scripture it almost always takes adversity for you to start to see God. I was telling Jonathan this morning, I was telling him about this, and I said, if everything's going good in your life, you don't see God because you don't need God. That's just the way we're wired. If I've got everything going right and i got money in the bank, my job's going well, my wife loves me, my kids are obedient, and everything's great, I don't need God, so I don't see God because I'm not seeking God. i got me. So what happens? Adversity. And adversity brings about what? Vulnerability. It's it's true in the story, right? Esther becomes queen. She didn't really need God at that point. Mordecai doesn't really need God at that point. When did they suddenly need God? When Haman showed up. When an edict gets written. And they become vulnerable. And they can't do anything about it inability. See, this is the part that we hate the most. None of us as men like to be incapable. I can't fix the problem. I don't know what to do. I've run out of options. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough wisdom. I don't have enough power, strength, whatever it is. Adversity comes, it makes you vulnerable, and then you realize, I can't do anything to fix it. It's the story of Esther. And then what does it mean? I've got to become dependent. Now, you can become dependent on some physical source, like trying to go to the king, trying to go to your banker, trying to go to your accountant, trying to go to your lawyer, trying to go to whatever, whoever. But really what God brings adversity into our lives for is that we might become dependent upon him. And then finally, expectancy. When you start getting expectant that my God sees, he's aware of the adversity, he knows I'm vulnerable, he knows I'm incapable and I have, I'm, have no ability to fix the problem, I'm completely dependent upon him and I'm crying out to him and I'm expecting him to do something. That's what we got to start seeing. That's how we, we see the all-seeing God. Now, None of those words are very attractive, are they? Well, I'd rather just look at the stars. Okay, the next time you face an adversity, if you go to the doctor today and he tells you you got cancer, just go out and stare at the stars. Maybe that'll help you. I don't know. But I don't think it's really going to solve your problem. Because you're going to have to admit that I'm I'm vulnerable, I'm incapable, and God, I'm completely dependent on you, so I cry out to you. And then watch what he does. One of my favorite passages in the scriptures is Exodus chapter 14, when the Israelites were led by God one direction, by Moses, and then God says, okay, stop, go back. And they go back the opposite direction, back towards where they had just left, and they end up at the Red Sea. And who's coming? Pharaoh and his army. And Moses says three things as the people begin to panic. Stop, stand, and see. Stop fearing, stand firm, and see. See what? See the salvation of the Lord. See adversity, vulnerability, inability, complete dependency, but expectancy. See the salvation of the Lord. That's why God has the book of Esther in the Bible. That's why God has the story of Daniel, the story of Joseph, the, the, the life of David, because he wants us to understand that this is how we see him in the midst of the adversity of life as we begin to become dependent upon him. So here's your three questions. What kinds of things make you question whether God is really at work in the world or in control of your life circumstances? Be specific, your particular life, your particular little world, what kinds of things make you question whether God is really at work? And it may be something in particular going through right now. Then give some examples from your own life where you may have felt abandoned by God, but were able to look back in retrospect and see his sovereign hand at work. When it was happening, you didn't see him, but five years later, 10 years later, you look back and go, man, God was all over that. See, we need to remind ourselves of those things. And then finally, Obviously, not every situation turns out to have a positive ending, loved ones die, friends contract cancer, jobs are lost, marriages end. How can we learn to see God even in these things? See, if you're going to counsel anybody, if you're going to come alongside anybody who's going through these things, you better be able to help them see God in the midst of those things. But it's going to be really hard if you don't know how to see God through adversity yourself. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for these guys and I pray that today as they talk about these questions, I know they're hard, I know they're difficult. But Father, we've got to wrestle through this because you're all over the place. You're involved in so many different ways and you you know everything that's going on in our lives and you want to be intimately involved, but sometimes Father, if not all the time what it's going to take is us facing adversity, realizing that we're vulnerable we're incapable, and that we need you more than anything else, and we turn to you instead of anything else, and then we live with a sense of expectancy, waiting to see you work in the way that only you can work. Lord, bless the time around the tables. Give them honesty, openness, vulnerability, and a love for one another as we seek to see you more and more with each passing day. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have fun.